0: Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire,
1: or kids laughing on an adventure.
0: To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Our Halloween streak continues. We want to start today's episode by saying this might not be your favorite show to listen to while you're eating. You think that's fair, Noel?
1: I mean, I, I say do what you want, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I find this to be strangely uh, appetizing.
0: <laughs> I don't know say. why.
1: Yeah, I, I'm a fan of trying new things. <laughs> Have you ever eaten human meat?
0: Uh, not knowingly, but there are some interesting things we will discover about cannibalism along the way today. Uh, my name is Ben. Let's hear a shout-out for our guest super producer, returning guest super producer, Paul Deckant.
1: Wow. Oh, that's great. That was a delayed reaction. <laughs> so, so, Paul, so, have you yeah. ever eaten human meat? Paul is shaking his head vehemently. Yeah.
0: Well, this is interesting, too, because um, does it count? as auto-cannibalism if you ever chewed your fingernails.
1: Oh, come now. That seems like a semantic rabbit hole there.
0: <laughs> it, is, it is a bit of one, but we are, I, I don't know, like we, we've both eaten some pretty weird, interesting, unique things, but you have never knowingly consumed man flesh. No. No, <laughs> no I have not. But as, as we learn, um, for hundreds of years it was not just a thing that people occasionally did it was considered something
1: healthy right it was and i think this conversation today is twofold it's about it's about the power of belief mm-hmm. the placebo effect you know i was having a really interesting conversation with my dear friend frank yesterday about how so many things boil down to the placebo effect if we can convince ourselves that something is efficacious whether spiritually whether mentally you know mentally psychologically then it's it's a way of kind of like actively tricking your mind into making you feel a certain way. And so many of these things that we're going to talk about today were like blood. If you drink the blood of a healthy person, it will make your blood better.
0: Right. This you kind know? of sympathetic magic almost, or this magical thinking. The thing that's fascinating about the placebo effect is it does have measurable, quantifiable results. People can physically... Uh, improve certain medical conditions based on the power of belief alone. And at the time when this was in vogue, in the the period that we will be discussing today, it was the
1: seventeenth, sixteenth, and seventeenth centuries yeah. when it kind of peaked,
0: right? Yeah, that's when it peaked in in Europe at least. Right. Uh, back then, they didn't understand the placebo effect. You only measured things by their perceived results. And I believe this this practice of consuming human flesh and blood for medicinal purposes really peaked in Germany, England, Italy, and France, right? Toward the end of the Renaissance.
1: That's right. And uh, some of the information that we're talking about today come from a fascinating book by a guy named Dr. Richard Sugg, who teaches over at England's University of Durham. And he wrote a book called Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires, The History of Corpse Medicine from the Renaissance to the Victorians. And this stuff was not just for the well-to-do, you know, the the elite. Mm -hmm. It was something that trickled down sometimes quite literally in the form of spurting gushes of blood coming from the necks of uh, execution victims in the square to the lower class who believed in this stuff just as much and would go to great pains to get access to whatever they could. Of course, the upper class had a lot more access to mm-hmm. the freshest of the fresh, mm-hmm. the best of the best in terms of their, uh, their parts that they were using to make some of these remedies.
0: And as Sug mentions... In an interview uh, with the Smithsonian, the question was not so much should we eat human flesh, but it was more a question of what sort of flesh is best to eat? What sort of human flesh is best to eat? And at first, Egyptian mummies were
1: tremendously popular. Yeah, because they, I mean, I don't know, it it seems like that would be a a lot to go through to get— Yourself, get your hands on a legit Egyptian mummy over in Europe. I don't know. there were quite a few. There was a mummy glut for some time. Yeah, that's right. Mummies um, were a big part of this trend. Um, here's here's the thing. They would do things like grind up human skulls and then distill them down to alcohol to make something that later became popularized by King Charles II of England uh, in the form of a tincture that he referred to as the king's drops, which again was human skull powdered and dissolved in alcohol. And it supposedly cured everything from epilepsy to, you know, various seizures, headaches, you know, whatever you got, the king's drops mm-hmm. can can cure what ails you. Yeah. And that's that's where things get interesting here because I don't think – there's obviously no way to no, – no scientific data that we have to measure how effective this stuff would have been. It was that power of belief it seems like to me.
0: Right. This this is a panacea. Anytime that a medicine is proclaimed to be essentially a cure-all, it may have some sort of beneficial effect on certain conditions, but it's almost completely unlikely that it would treat all of the conditions listed. They also, in addition to the King's Drops, they used human fat. Uh, human fat was an external treatment. German doctors wanted to soak bandages in human fat or rub fat onto the skin as a remedy for gout. This kind of stuff may sound sort of gruesome and scary to us now, but back then, this was seen as something that was the, well, it's feels unfair to say it, but the bleeding edge of science. You know, these were scientists and doctors and priests who were recommending this treatment and taking it themselves. Oh,
1: totally. And it's like, you know, it's really easy to write this off as some sort of dark ages, kind of like bloodletting or leeching or whatever. But, you know, this had the backing of at least the, uh, some of the greatest minds of the time. One of which was a German uh, doctor, uh, a German-Swiss doctor from the 16th century named Paracelsus. And he was all about drinking blood and thought that it could, you know, help keep you from aging. Some of these ideas that we have of vampirism even, right? Mm -hmm. Like the being forever young or whatever, or that it could, like we said, this notion of like cures like, meaning that if you have a blood condition or, you know, you're anemic or something, that drinking someone else's blood, preferably of a young person, possibly a virgin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a big thing they really liked was people that were killed under violent circumstances because supposedly that made it more potent in some way.
0: Right, the blood was more vital. And not only not only was the blood more vital if someone was killed under violent circumstances, but it was more vital if it was given to you directly from the executioners, who were these social outcasts thought to have profound magical abilities. Executioners were seen... Um, a, they were still social lepers but they were they were seen as great healers too and we sh- we should mention that this this kind of practice while it had it it had a heyday in western europe toward the end of the renaissance this belief in like cures like cannibalism as medicine dates way back into antiquity uh In ancient Rome, people who suffered from epilepsy drank the blood of slain gladiators. Yeah, or
1: even, like, ate their livers, I Mm -hmm. believe. That's true. I mean, you know, that's about as fresh as it gets. But, yeah, it's true, Ben. Um, It was a very popular practice that as soon as the event was over, epileptics would— Run down and try to drink the blood directly from the body—something they would refer to as the living blood—and mm-hmm. um, there was even a Roman doctor named Scribonius Largus who tried to justify some of these things through all kinds of pseudoscientific uh, suggestions, um, and 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 indicated that if you ate the liver of a stag that was killed by a weapon that was used to kill a gladiator, then that. Also, would be imbued with the magical powers of the fallen gladiator, the the uh, the what's the word, the the uh, vitality kind of right. right.
0: And don't worry, this wasn't all just running up and trying to immediately get fresh blood from a corpse before it coagulated. There were also recipes where you would you would cook stuff and prepare it. And in mummies, cannibals, and vampires, you can find some depictions of these recipes. So the first step was to take blood from, quote, persons of warm, moist temperament, such as those of a blotchy red complexion and rather plump of build, and then you would let it dry or coagulate into a sticky mass, and then you would place it on a flat, smooth table of soft wood, cut into thin little slices, let the watery parts drip away, then put it on a stove on the same table, stir it into a batter, wait until it's absolutely dry, Put it on a warm bronze mortar, pound it through a sieve of finest silk, and when it has all been sieved, seal it in a glass jar, renew it in the spring of every year. So this was also associated with the passage of seasons, you know, sort of the the macro version of individual life, death, and rebirth.
2: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com/iheart. That's lifelock.com/iheart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here
0: So, the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I
2: want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles.
0: Experience the music and her story. Know
2: this. I ain't no
0: spy girl. Like never before.
2: That's my daughter. That's my Amy.
0: The big screen.
2: I wanna be remembered for just being me.
0: Amy Winehouse, back to black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R under seventeen, not a minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th.
1: I've got a favorite quote. Uh, from a an article in Atlas Obscura about this mm-hmm. subject called European Corpse Medicine Promised Better Health Through Cannibalism. Um, and this comes from a tome called the Pharmacopoeia Medico-Chimica, Chimica, I believe? Chimica, um, And this was by a German doctor named Johann Schroeder, um, and this was written in the 17th century. And this is kind of the end-all, be-all. This sort of sums up sort of like what the creme de la creme of the specimen that you might be after to, to get you some of these uh, sweet, sweet, human meat bits quote take the fresh unspotted cadaver of a red-headed man because in them the blood is thinner and the flesh hence more excellent aged about 24 the body the guy a person 24 years old who has been executed and died a violent death let the corpse lie one day and night in the sun and moon but the weather must be good Cut the flesh in pieces and sprinkle it with myrrh and just a little aloe. Then soak it in spirits of wine for several days. Hang it up for six or ten hours. Soak it again in spirits of wine. Then let the pieces dry in dry air. In a shady spot, no less. Uh, Thus, they will be similar to smoked meat and will not stink.
0: Yeah, stink is important, and you don't want too much aloe. Like, that's just basic cannibalism 101 right there. You know what I mean? Nothing ruins an otherwise fantastic cadaver uh, more than too much aloe. You have to be moderate with that. And as we said, this was, again, this was not a bad thing. These people who were being consumed, although they were almost certainly being consumed without their consent in most cases, they were not being punished Uh, European practitioners of this believed that they were acquiring vitality, but they didn't think they were, you know, stealing the souls of their enemies or something aggressive of that nature. There's a very interesting point they bring up in Lapham's quarterly roundtable, a brief history of medical cannibalism by Bess Lovejoy, which is that while people in Europe were consuming Blood or or livers or human flesh or using human fat uh, as a poultice for wounds, they were also tremendously discriminatory against a couple of other kinds of cannibalism. One would be the alleged practices of indigenous Americans, which were wildly exaggerated, spun out into these racist uh, tall tales of. Sworn, monstrous, man-eating people living on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. And then the second one was discrimination against Catholics.
1: Because Because of of transubstantiation, right? Right. The belief that the
0: wafer of wine one consumes at communion does, in fact, become the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. So they said these people are cannibals while they are rubbing human body fat on their gout. On their boo-boos. Yeah, on their their boo-boos. And this this seems, again, this seems strange. It seems like some double think.
1: Did you see the quote from that anthropologist? Who kind of just referred to this as being very hypocritical. And I, mean, mm-hmm. I was trying to find it. You may have it in front of you right now, and mm-hmm. it was a good one.
0: Well, there, there were people who were against this or at least noticed the hypocrisy very early on. There was a French writer named Michel de Montaigne, sorry, Casey, I hope we're doing you proud here, who in 1580 attacked the hypocrisy of Europeans who condemned these practices. And he said, you know, essentially, you cannot condemn people for practicing one kind of ritualized or spiritual cannibalism while you are happily grinding up mummies and drinking tinctures and skulls and having the king's drops. And then other people, like in 1566, even earlier than that, the herbalist Leonhard Fuchs That's a tough one. Had attacked this, quote, gory matter of cadavers sold for medicine, wondering who, unless he approves of cannibalism, would not loathe this remedy.
1: Here's the one I was talking about, and yeah. that's all fascinating and, and completely on point. Um, this is interesting, though. This uh, cultural and medical anthropologist from Vanderbilt named Beth Conklin in the Smithsonian article um, talks about the distinction between non-Western cannibalism mm-hmm. of, like, indigenous tribal—the notion of ritual cannibalism and the kind that we're talking about. In the former, um, there is such a huge relationship between the eater and the et. you know, as though you are— specific Specifically, soaking up their spirit in some way, or like capturing some spiritual essence, or communing with your ancestors, or communing with your ancestors, right? And in what we're talking about, it is that was gone. That was like totally irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's much more about the notion of that, like. Cure, like-cures-like mm-hmm. mentality of, like, I'm going to drink your blood. It's going to fix my blood. You know, it's, it's it's a lot less spiritual. It's much more pseudoscientific, really, you know?
0: Right, right, because it was seen as technology rather than an article of faith.
1: And that is not to say that we don't do things today like get blood transfusions or liver transfusions mm-hmm. that one could equate to— absorbing someone else's fluids or viscera, you know? It's obviously not the same as just, like, you know, munching it down.
0: Right. Uh, Also, since we are in one of the uh, spookiest seasons of the year, I do feel it is appropriate for us to mention that despite the, the scientific pursuit that was occurring in Europe, there was also a history of using human body parts for magical purposes, like a thieves' candle or a hand of glory.
1: Thieves' candle being a candle made out of human fat, right? For the tallows, I guess.
0: Yeah, and up until, uh, up into the 1880s, these thieves' candles were used to stupefy or paralyze a person. I myself could see it working because if someone lit a human fat candle in front of me, I would be shocked, at least for a short time. I would be very surprised if anyone did that. And, Noel, I have a, oh, man. I've been waiting. I don't know if now is the time, but do you want to learn about something related to this, but equally strange? Yeah. It's a little bit sweeter. Have you ever heard of the mellified man? No. <laughs> sounds, <laughs> so, sounds tasty. It's a human mummy confection. Uh-huh. So this was a legendary medicinal substance created by steeping a willing human corpse in honey, It dates back to uh, the 1500s, so even kind of around the same time period, a Chinese medical doctor named Li Shizhen was reporting that in Arabia, in the modern-day Middle East, some elderly men nearing the end of their lives would mummify themselves in honey. And this process, mellification, would start before... They died. So the men were 70 or 80 years old, and when they made this decision to become a mellified person, they took no more food or drink, only bathing and eating a little honey, till a month after his excreta are nothing but honey, and then he dies. They put the body in a stone coffin, likewise full of honey, with an inscription giving the year and month of burial. After a hundred years, the seals are removed and the confection is used to treat wounds and fractures and broken limbs, and you only have to do it kind of like the king's drops. You only consume a few drops orally, and the doctor says he doesn't know whether or not this is a true tale, but for hundreds of years afterwards, the same sort of people who are like, you know what's going to cure my epilepsy, mummy dust. We're like, we need to find one of these honey corpses. And now, even now, people are still debating whether or not this actually happened.
1: And the thing, too, um, that I've gotten from several sources, Mm -hmm. uh, just the perspective on this, is that it was almost treated... It wasn't really magical thinking exactly in, in this period because it was backed by that, this Renaissance kind of ideal of like progress and like, you know, medical um, innovation. Mm-hmm. But it was almost like, almost kind of like a holistic type thing, right? Where it almost was the way you would be, you know, there were a lot of these herbs and different kind of holistic remedies mixed in. Like, for example, even that uh, little quote that I read earlier about what kind of body to prepare and, like, how to slice it up and make, you know, human jerky out of it, it talked about soaking in an aloe. An aloe is is Mm -hmm. known to have some kind of holistic benefits as far as, like, calming the stomach or different things like that. And in a lot of these recipes— you see it mixed with things like myrrh and peony. and like all of these kind of things that you might see in a little bit more of a holistic remedy type, an herbalist kind of book, right? Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, it's interesting, there's sort of like a combination there, I wonder if it was less the the human meat, and more the you know, tummy calming herbs.
0: Right, and there's there's another book we should shout out here, Uh, Louise Noble, the author of Medicinal Cannibalism in Early Modern English Literature and Culture, has also pursued uh, similar research to the book we mentioned earlier, Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires, and what they keep confirming is that while there were some opponents there were very very few opponents far far fewer than you might think most people at this time in Europe were generally on board with this and did not think it was a um, did not think it was an ethical quandary yeah.
1: didn't think it was immoral well did we, we talked about, we've talked about Resurrection Men before, the idea of mm-hmm. digging up bodies in order to perform autopsies, because that was very in vogue around this time, too. Sure. The science of, uh, you know, breaking down the human body and figuring out how, what makes it tick. But that was definitely happening as well to get some of these specimens, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I want to go on record here saying I think it's time we resurrect Resurrection Men, at least the phrase. It's just too cool to let it die.
1: It should be like a superhero crew.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised it's not already a wrestling team or something. I don't know. Let us know what you think, uh, what what kind of group would be called
1: Resurrection Men today in 2018. That is a good question, Ben, and I'd like to know. Um, There were some other, even more messed up places that these bodies were uh, acquired. One in particular was from Ireland, because the Irish were, uh, in Europe, pretty severely looked down upon and they you know the the highfalutin European aristocracy probably didn't think much of uh importing some Irish cadavers. In particular, there was one remedy that I think is fascinating. It was a type of moss that would grow on a skull. Yeah. And that was a very popular one as well. And it was specifically indigenous to Ireland.
0: Yeah. The moss. Their skulls were plucked from battlefields.
1: Battlefields and mass graves. Uh and, And, you know, even... Of course, the people that are going to get the brunt of this are going to be the poor that are in unmarked graves or right. in like more like mass graves. But I don't think it was beneath uh, some of these folks that were trying to make a buck uh, to maybe even do a little digging up of marked graves, right? Proper cemeteries. And
0: Sug makes a great note about this because he he explains how the Irish were seen as as you said Noel, deeply inferior on some level. And according to him, according to the author, corpse medicines were often derived from bodies alienated in various ways from ordinary humanity, distant most of all from you, whether you are a merchant, a thief, an apothecary physician, or a patient. And this is, this is an incredibly important point because we're othering things. These people thought it would be completely uncivil to eat the uh, skull of someone they knew from town, you know what i mean? Your your fellow neighbor's skull shouldn't be in your king's drops. It had to be something exotic, something different, something a little bit less human in the mind of the person taking this sort of treatment So, the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1 800 Discover to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com/slash credit card. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black.
2: I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles.
0: Experience the music and her story.
2: Know this. I ain't no
0: spy scale Like never before.
2: That's my daughter. That's my Amy.
0: Big screen. I
2: want to be remembered for just
0: being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running, but it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, is gonna be well what what happened next?
1: Where how did this fall out of vogue? Yeah, I don't know. It 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 was uh there was evidence of it happening as recently as like the eighteen hundreds, right? Yes. So it didn't just fall right out of vogue.
0: No, maybe people just stopped being as open about it. And for uh the fans of the X Files and such in the crowd, it evokes this image perhaps of people secretly feeding on, (laughs) feeding on blood or human flesh to extend their own lifespans or treat various medical conditions. And boy, do we have a story for you Uh, on a different show. We talked about this in an episode on modern vampires. Here in the U.S., as we as we record this episode, there are two different companies that for a significant amount of money will transfer the blood or the plasma specifically of a young person into the body of an older person in the hopes of extending their lifespan and the quality of their life. Do you remember that one?
1: Yeah, man, it makes me think of that Radiohead song on Hail to the Thief, We Suck Young Blood. Yes, you know? yeah, uh, That's so. a, That's a creepy one. But, um, yeah, that's always what I think of. It's intense. And, I, and you think of it as being this thing that, like, only the elite, you know, mega evil, like the elitist of the elite, most evil, megalomaniacal humans would ever consider mm-hmm. doing. Um, but then when you see the way it happened throughout history, you know, drinking blood from the neck of the body on the chopping block—they mm-hmm. literally would pay a couple bucks or whatever to the executioner to get get a little cup of the blood. Yeah. And it was warm and fresh. You start to realize that, like, no, it's, this is not exclusively in the realms of the uh, the elite.
0: Yet it's not exclusively confined to the past. In fact, in recent years, there's been a cannibalism crisis in certain African countries where. Wherein people who have, uh, people who are albinos, who have albinism, right, where their skin is very, very light, mm-hmm. are being hunted because their body parts are used in magical rituals. So this this continues, but this is a little different because it's not seen as a science. Again, the folks who were doing this during the Renaissance period that we we're talking about, we, we can't emphasize this enough but we will try they did not think they were doing anything bad they did not think they were villains they thought they were early adopters or um people who were illuminated to ancient medicinal lore interesting you have to wonder you know what what was it like back then especially when so many so many conditions were fatal or a death sentence, you can't blame people for looking for hope wherever they could
1: find it. Dude, I saw an amazing image the other day of some Egyptian dental work, and it was like holes were drilled in the center of the teeth, and they were like, you know, strung together with bits of like gold wire or copper or whatever. Mm -hmm. Really, really painful looking, but I guess a better alternative than... I don't know. seems like you can just let the teeth fall out. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I think I've seen similar photos, and the th- it, it made me feel like my mouth hurt just looking at it. You know what I mean? I experienced vicarious pain. And we have to ask, you know, while it's easy for us to distance ourselves from this today, what would you do if consuming some sort of tincture or potion or wearing some sort of poultice of human flesh— Uh, Could help treat a wound faster or more efficiently than modern medical techniques. Would you do it? Would you, would you want to know the provenance of the, I guess, the human medicine that you are consuming or would you rather it be anonymous? I don't know, because people do a lot of stuff to stay alive. You yeah, know
1: I mean? they really do. They do They, they do to this day. And sure. I think the placebo effect largely uh, is still in play, you know, mm-hmm. despite doctors' sort of quickness to prescribe something that will cure a particular, you know, illness. Um, I think a lot of times people get more psychologically dependent on stuff, especially in the realm of, like, mental health, you know, mm-hmm. the idea of antidepressants and anxiety medications. I think it's it's easy to... Discount how powerful the mind is in these situations. Just think that a medicine can just flip a switch and like make you better. Um, But there's still that psychological component that I think is just as important as it was when people were, uh, you know, eating corpse juice, Mm -hmm. corpse dust, corpse paste.
0: Absolutely. Oh, corpse pills. Uh, There's still, there's probably something like that still around. And we don't want to end on. A down note. We hope that you found this as darkly fascinating as we both did. Uh, but let's, let's end on uh, something a little more conversational and fun and less grim. Noel, what do you say to some listener mail? I love it. Noel, this is, this is a short one. And it's someone pinging us on something that we... Dinging? Pinging. Pinging. Not, Pinging with a P. Okay. It's giving us a little poke. Like potential, yeah, or poke. Ryan M. He wrote in and said, Dear Ben, Nolan, Casey, I think it would be monumentously ridiculous and possibly quite educational to feature an entire episode exclusively in Richard Nixon impersonations. I just listened to your episode about Richard Nixon and Louis Armstrong, and I would like to challenge you to do the aforementioned Nixon episode so long as it has nothing to do with Nixon. Thanks, guys. Keep it ridiculous. That is
1: just a tall order, man. I, you know, I was, I was on board with that when we threw it out there as kind of a joke. But we have gotten a lot of feedback that people would like to hear us do a Nick all-Nixon episode. But I don't think I'd be able to keep character.
0: I think we can do—this is my pitch, and let me know what you think, ridiculous historians. I think we could do a segment. How about that? Like 10, 15 minutes? I think we could do that.
1: We could it be a recurring
0: segment. It could be a recurring segment. It could even be, okay, this is why we love doing this show with each other because now
1: we are actively brainstorming live. It could just be different impersonations. That's true. Or it could be Nixon's commenting on the news. Nixon's Nixon's on the news. Nixon's on the news. Nixon's on the news. Nixon's on the news. (laughs) Yeah. All all of our uh, segments have to have alliteration in it. There's Casey on the case, Nixon's on the the news. news. We're kind of a one trick. We button. got to work with fact, genie. We're still workshopping. Well, we—that's that, that. We've kind of killed that segment. We—I think we did. We do it more than once. I think we maybe did it twice.
0: <laughs> I think we should. I think we should
1: go back to the drawing board on that. That whole yeah. concept.
0: So the vision board, you mean? So what? Uh, do you have a listener mail? Yeah, that I do. Particularly caught your interest. It's a
1: shorty. The subject is spam, but it is not spam. But it's about spam, and it comes from Benjamin S. And it says, "I was listening to your spam episode when I heard you say that Russian food." is gross. All that you have to do is try Chuboriek or Chaborek. I'm I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. C-H-E-B-U-R-E-K-I. I've heard it a couple different ways. Um but he says, this opinion will disappear. Just look it up. If you want to make it yourself, I would recommend the YouTube channel, Life of Boris. Anyway, you guys <laughs> have a great show, and I'm always excited for the next episode. Well, thank you, Benjamin. And I I, I did look it up, and it looks delicious. It's
0: great. It's almost like an empanada.
1: Almost like, an, like a combination of like a... Exactly, Ben. It's like a hand pie, meat pie kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what some of the filling options oh, are. Oh,
0: uh, ground or minced meat, but they also have onions added in there. It's a national dish of the tatar people interesting
1: yeah i think so, it's beef or lamb oh i love lamb yeah um, I, would, I would go for lamb um but yeah that does look fantastic and i had never heard of that one before but it is very similar to like an empanada or almost like a pierogi or something or like a pasty you ever had a pasty <laughs> yes yes in like uh, often. is that a pennsylvania thing it's certainly in that part of the country right
0: Yeah, probably. I mean, look, I'm always down for turnover, meat pie kind of situation. That's just who I am. I've accepted it. I lean into it. (laughs) Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Ryan, uh, for writing to us. This concludes our listener mail, but not our show. Tune in for our next episode, where we explore the fact and fiction behind what may well be history's first serial killer. Oh, we should also make an announcement, Noel. We're since we're uh, gonna be on the road
1: yeah with you know? our other show mm-hmm. Stuff They Don't Want You To Know yeah, we are uh, gonna you're gonna have one sad sad week where you only get one episode out of us
0: but it's gonna be a very special episode we don't wanna spoil it but uh, you may just bust the gut laughing
1: oh yeah Ben that was very coy of you <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. yeah cause typically you know we, we were more of a groan inducing show than a laugh inducing show and this episode <laughs> my friends is gonna Flip that on his head, and that paradigm is going to
0: shift. <laughs> oh, boy, I hope we're not making too, uh, too many promises. But I feel confident, Noel. I feel confident in I
1: this. too, yeah.
0: And in the meantime, contact your fellow Ridiculous Historians and take a guess as to what this episode might be. It's going to be tough to guess. I, I will personally be surprised and impressed if anybody guesses it in advance. But you can cooperate with your fellow listeners on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook,
1: especially our community page, Ridiculous historians If you don't want to do any of that stuff, you can write us an email at ridiculous at howstuffworks.com. Take a cue from your fellow listeners, and we'll read those things on the show. Oh, and lest we forget, Mm. uh, thanks to super producer, guest super producer. He's just a run-of-the-mill, excellent producer. Oh, yeah, and a great guy, too. Great guy. Paul Deckant, ladies and gentlemen. He doesn't have a voice, though. He is, in fact, mute. (laughs) Um, But he is really good at hand gestures and Mm -hmm. head shakes Paul nods.
0: Paul is MBC, Mute by Choice. Mute by Choice, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'd also like to thank Alex Williams, who composed our track. And of course, we'd like to thank our research associates, Christopher Haciotis and Yves Jeffcoat. And as we often do when we close the show, Noel, I'd like to thank you. This was uh, illuminating.
1: It was something. At luckylandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids, Bob Kids, Megan Trainer, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin.